Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 129, and today's guest is Alicia Lindgren, CEO at College Lab. Alicia's career started out in the financial services industry, and then she later moved into the nonprofit sector before transitioning into the educational field, where she has developed a deep level of expertise around college admissions. College Lab is an AI-driven college admissions tool that helps families and counselors better navigate and manage the college admissions process. Built using machine learning methods, College Lab utilizes over 4 million student applications with outcomes to tell students their chance of admissions at 500 colleges and universities, comparing 12 data points and identifying areas they should focus on to improve their chances. Okay, I definitely have a confession to make about this podcast. Not only do Alicia and I have a deep conversation about the College Lab platform, but we also talk in great detail about the college admissions process. So why is this of great interest to me? Well, I have a daughter who is a sophomore in high school, and while we're not out there doing college visits just yet, it is all right around the corner, which is absolutely crazy to think about. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the truth behind college rankings and their data. Alicia's background story in terms of her professional career, all the details on College Lab and what makes the platform valuable to students, parents, and counselors, her thoughts on the SAT and ACT and the current status of these tests, how colleges and universities make their decisions around admissions, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, our job board has over 4,500 positions listed, and the design of our job listings just went through a major overhaul. It is a much cleaner design, and you'll find highly relevant information on each listing, like employee testimonials, photos, video, and the latest featured story from VentureFizz. This way, you can learn a lot more about the company and its culture direct from each job listing. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Alicia. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I am in the throes of what we're talking about with, uh, you know, the company that you're a part of College Lab and your platform, which is helping uh, students and parents with this roadmap to find out which schools uh, hopefully they can pursue and get accepted to. So I, uh, I have two girls, uh, 15 and a 13 year old. So that means I have a daughter entering her sophomore year. So I'm in the throes of this whole college discussion. So we're going to have so much to talk about. <laughs> Living and, the dream, Keith. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but you know, something I've always thought about is, um, you know, so these, these college ranking resources that are out there, most notably U.S. News and Report, um, you know, are these like credible? I mean, there's different options that are out there, but the one in particular, U.S. News and Report, they seem to have the longest history. And then there was something that I noticed out there in the news at some point that, um, you know, the University of Oklahoma actually kind of tweaked their numbers to get a favorable ranking. So that makes me wonder, are these, you know, institutions trying to just make sure that they're getting publicized and, you know, in the right regard in these ranking systems versus reality? Yeah, great, uh, great information, because it is true. In fact, the University of Oklahoma just uh, was called out for not just reporting fraudulent data in one year, but reporting fraudulent data over a 20-year period. And they were focused on this one statistic, which was um, uh, alumni giving rate. So they pumped their alumni giving rate up to 14%, when in reality, over that period, it was something closer to 9 or 10%. And that seems like such a small thing. Why should we really care, right? But, um, but University of Oklahoma is not alone. In fact, 
you know, many years ago, maybe 10 years ago, George Washington University's director of admissions had to resign over a similar scandal where they had been essentially fabricating or fabricating or pumping up numbers that they were sending into U.S. News and World Report to boost their rankings. Um, and, you know, there have been other colleges that were caught in sort of the same web as well. So it's worth, you know, I, I feel for families uh, like you about to embark on this process because we're all hungry for information. Um, and, you know, I also have two children and they're already graduated. One is graduated from college, one is a rising senior. So I've lived this pathway as well. And we're hungry for information. We want to do what's best for our kids. We want them to be quote unquote happy. And so when we look for sources of information, U.S. News and World Report, and I'm dating myself, but that used to be a magazine, actually printed magazine. Oh, I remember it well. Yep. (laughs) Well-trusted resource. And so now they exist solely online and they are famous because of this college ranking system. So on the one hand, it gives people a framework, and that's what a lot of families are looking for, just a place to start. So it's completely understandable that people will turn to them. But I think in fairness, rather than um, just taking what U.S. News and World Report puts out at face value, it's important to look at what's behind the numbers. Are those numbers, as you pointed out, are they actually coming out of verified uh, data? And the answer is, in some cases, sadly, no. Because colleges are incented, it's kind of this vicious cycle, they're incented to rise in the rankings because it has been proven that when colleges are higher in the rankings, they get more applications. And when they get more applications, that allows them to be more selective. And because many families are focused on this idea of selectivity, and you know, we can talk about this a little bit later, but it's the idea of, do I find schools that are quote unquote the best for my children or that are the best fit? So I believe that the best fit is important, but it's natural to think I want the best for my child regardless of the situation. So when you're just looking at the best, you're going to look at selectivity. What's the hardest school to get into and can my child to get in, get into it? So again, that drives applications, which drives uh, university's desire to, to mess around with those rankings. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, it's just so competitive now and you see these scandals like, you know, everyone saw on the news of USC and, you know, people paying to get their students in. So it's, uh, it's, it's crazy what's going on right now. But before we get deeper into the admissions process, cause we're going to go deeper, but uh, let's talk about your background. So like, where did you grow up? Like, what were you like as a, as, as a kid? Great. Uh, so I grew up in uh, New York City. Yes, people actually do grow up right in Manhattan. I'm one of those few, I guess. Um, and uh, I went to a small uh, private school. We had uh, about 40 people in my entire grade. Uh, and I went to the same little private school until all the way through ninth grade and then went to boarding school. Uh, two of my best friends went away to boarding school and I was eager to see the world. So being a New Yorker doesn't mean you've seen everything. I kind of wanted to get out of my little bubble there. Um, and I was pretty nerdy kid, glasses, braces, shortest in my class, the whole nine yards. Um, but I loved being a nerd. I loved, uh, math. I still love math. I love reading, um, a little bit of a bookwormy kind of a person, I guess. And then what brought you to Dartmouth to study political science and government? Uh, so I went to boarding school in New Hampshire and I guess I just couldn't get enough of, uh, the White Mountains and the beauty that is here. So uh, I actually was recruited to Dartmouth as a coxswain. So uh, one of my few uh, natural skills is that I have a loud mouth and I talk a lot. So being a coxswain was a perfect fit. 
that, that must be a tough job. I always wonder, like, if you're if you play that role on a, on a crew team, like, 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 it's got to be a tough job. It's it is a it's a tough job. It's kind of like being a goalie in lacrosse or soccer, right? So if if everything goes wrong, it's easy to blame kind of the one person who's steering and and controlling the boat from that standpoint. But one thing that I loved about rowing it is that, is that it's the ultimate team sport. You can't. Uh, can't move the boat without everyone participating. And so I loved being an integral part of that team. It also taught me great leadership skills, how to motivate a group of people who were very different, but who all had to be giving a hundred percent in order to do well. Um, so I absolutely adored uh, being a coxswain and being on the water. And it is beautiful up here on the Connecticut river. I have to say, yeah, um, over New Hampshire. So, yeah, so I ended up at, yeah. So I ended up at Dartmouth for rowing and um, I initially was going to be an economics major. And that kind of brings me back around to the topic of sort of um, fit versus um, going for the best. And at the time that I entered uh, Dartmouth, it was 1982. So this was an era when women were supposed to be doing everything and we had every opportunity available to us. So I've been told in high school, I went on an informational interview with a friend of my parents. And I told him that I was really interested in finance and could he tell me about it? And he said, you know, young lady like you, you should do something that you'll love. Why don't you sell handbags at Bloomingdale's? Oh my. And so I said, <laughs> I'm you saying I am going to be in finance if it kills me and I'm going to send my resume to that guy first. Um, so I, I went in with the idea that I was going to be an economics major and uh, I just didn't love it. I was shocked. I had always loved my classes. Um, I always loved, uh, yeah, I I was not afraid of a challenge. And I ended up studying political science because at the time, the professors at Dartmouth in the political science department were absolutely fantastic. It is a discussion-based major. So I was really able to take advantage of the students who were around me engaging in really in-depth conversations, um, not just with the students, but with the professors. Uh, and I love that ability to interact and also learn and make sense of the world around me. So that was pretty exciting. I also got to kind of travel vicariously. So uh, studying, for example, politics of the Middle East and history of the Middle East, I felt like I was there in a lot of ways without the travel budget to do so. So, and then after college, so you, you worked in the financial services industry across, you know, banking, venture capital, private equity. So talk about kind of your, your professional history when you, you came out of school. Sure. So um, I started out back in the day when uh, banks actually invested a significant amount in their new hires. So uh, when I started at uh, predecessor to J.P. Morgan Chase, so those of you who are over 50 might might, uh, remember Manny Hanny, Manufacturers Hanover Trust Company. And I was hired into a six-month training program. And that was fantastic because I could finally be the quasi-economics major that I never was in college. So I basically got a six month, all expenses paid, plus a salary mini MBA. And that was a fantastic way to get started. Uh, I actually worked in the private bank. So I ended up working in uh, what was called the entrepreneurial segment at the time. So I worked with entrepreneurs. Uh, After a couple of years, uh, Manny Hanny offered to pay for my uh, business school education. They didn't want all the young people to leave. So they offered to do that as kind of a little carrot. And I took it, uh, and it was a very cost-effective way to get my MBA at Columbia. Um, But then after I earned my MBA, I did what the bank didn't want me to do in the first place, which was uh, I was hired by one of my clients. 
So it's hired by a guy named Lewis Marks. He ran a series of what are called 40 Act companies, which are public uh, investment vehicles. So he raised money using the public markets and we invested in uh, early stage all the way through to growth capital companies. Um, and that was a lot of fun. It was very fast paced. Um, I got to use those skills that I learned in the credit training program at, at the bank. Um, and I was living the dream uh, and absolutely adored it. But I was commuting three hours a day. By that time, I had um, two small children. My husband was in, in a similar uh, role at a different company. So we both were constantly traveling and had these enormous commutes and something had to give. So um, that's when it was actually 2001 when a lot of other things were falling apart in the world, not just my commutation life. And so I uh, took a step back and decided to immerse myself in the community and in my kids. Okay. And so, so then what did you do after that? Because there was a point in time where you moved to, to Switzerland, right? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so from 2001 to 2008, I was involved in a lot of kind of local boards. I really got involved in, in the public schools in our town. I actually even was elected to the Board of Finance in our little town of Wilton, Connecticut, um, and just really wanted to give back, to take the opportunity to, um, to spend the time with my family and engage in our community. It was extremely rewarding. And then in the middle of all that, my husband, who at the time was working for UBS, which is a bank that's based in Zurich, uh, raised his hand and said, hey, if and you're looking for anyone to go to Zurich, pick, pick us. So uh, we went for the proverbial two-year expat stint and ended up staying eight years. So that experience must have been amazing. Oh, it was phenomenal. And uh, I have to, to say, I actually, I still go back uh, about every six to eight weeks. I run a small independent counseling business that I, that I do run out of uh, my Zurich office. And uh, yeah, mountains, cheese, and chocolate. What else could you wish for? Right. So how did you get involved in more of on the academic side of things and you know, kind of leading to what you're doing now? Sure. So um, when my uh, oldest, my daughter, uh, was about your daughter's age, um, parents are very aware of, um, of other parents and trying to use each other in a positive way for information. And so uh, people found out that I had gone to some name brand uh, colleges and, and business school. And so I started to get invited to coffees and then I started to get invited to lunches and dinners. And before long, I didn't have to pay for a meal. So everyone was kind of picking my brain about the college process. But really all I knew at that time was what I had learned by being an alumni interviewer for Dartmouth for about 20 years. And that was that no one gets in anywhere. So that was a little bit of depressing information to share, but it was the truth. So around that time that I was having lots of free meals, um, a, I guess an acquaintance of mine at the time who uh, still runs a small tutoring uh, company in Zurich that caters to international students in the Zurich area. She was taking a year off. She bought a round the world ticket and she was looking for someone to run her business. So she gave me this opportunity to babysit a business that I really knew nothing about. She said, um, yeah, enjoy it. Don't, you don't have to set any uh, great metrics for yourself. Just please don't tank it. And I'll meet you back here in a year. So in hindsight, I should have been the one with the round the world ticket. That would have been a better, better part of the bargain. <laughs> but what I did get out of it was the knowledge that I absolutely adored working with young people. The tutoring part, eh, not so much. Organizing 50 tutors and 150 students, that was a lot of logistics that that's not my forte. Mm -hmm. um, but working with um, 
other people's children and being part of that journey of self-discovery through high school and on the way to university is really exciting. Well, let's talk about College Lab. So um, talk about the origin story of, of College Lab and, and how did you get involved? Sure. So um, College Lab uh, was actually founded in an incubator. So I work right now as part of a, I work as the CEO of College Lab, but we're part of a group of companies under Kerflomics Capital. And uh, Kerflomics Capital runs several different projects. One of the data scientists who was working actually on a healthcare project came to the um, principals of Kerflomics and said, hey, you know, you guys might want to take a look at a project that I worked on when I was getting my master's degree in data science at Harvard. And so at the time, he was actually, or had, uh, worked on an algorithm and was starting to accumulate uh, data to go th to plow into that algorithm to be able to predict a student's chances of admission to several different colleges and universities. So again, our principal's ears perked right up and said, wow, this is super exciting. Let's see what you got. And so over the course of the following year, um, our developers in-house at this incubator were able to create a really beautiful, very user-friendly user interface. And also were able to marry the kind of science of the algorithm with admissions know-how because we're located in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is the backyard of a very famous Ivy League institution. And there are lots of former admissions officers and even deans of admission that are also sharing that same backyard. So we were able to work with them to un better understand what are the primary components that are data-based that are used in the college admissions decision. We put that together with the algorithm and that's kind of how College Lab was born. Okay. So, so what is College Lab? So as a, uh, a student, what can I expect? And, and as a parent, like, like what, why should I consider using that platform? Sure. Well, I do feel like I'm talking to you directly, Keith, because you've got those two kids coming. I know. I am the exact <laughs> situation of, uh, of the customer here. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so College Lab is really a, a tool. It's something that you can have in your arsenal in addition to your own personal knowledge, uh, lots of other information on, on the internet. And we want to help you navigate the college admissions process. So how do we do that? We have an online artificially intelligent application that helps students like your daughter understand their college options, set specific goals for themselves so that they can actually not just find colleges, but also research colleges and increase their chances of getting in to their best fit colleges. Sounds amazing. <laughs> it is. It's pretty exciting. It's actually pretty revolutionary, I have to say. So, so how does it work? Like, so I assume you've gathered all these data points from anonymous students that kind of tells the tale of their journey from A to B. So, so, so how did you compile that data? And then what type of data, when you sign up, I'm sure you ask, must ask for data to help. Sure. Yeah, so our, our algorithm is actually machine learning, and this is kind of above my pay grade. I'm not the tech person, but right. um, what I do understand, <laughs> exactly. So what I do know is that, that our algorithm gets smarter the more data is fed through it. And so that's why we were excited to have this team of data scientists that has gone out there and been able to pull 4 million individual student profiles, and these are de-identified, which is really important to us, um, but they are vetted. So these are students who have applied to and then been accepted, rejected, or waitlisted at hundreds of colleges across the US. So 
when we feed that information, each individual um, student file for our algorithm, our algorithm says, hey, now I'm figuring this out. Sometimes some of the results are, net, are maybe counterintuitive. Some of them are more intuitive. So we can suss out things like, hey, if I come from a metropolitan Boston area, I'm going to maybe be slightly disadvantaged, all else being equal, than a student who's coming from North Dakota or South Carolina, because there just are fewer applications at that particular you know, set of schools in the Boston area from outside of the, the kind of Northeast corridor. Um, but we take into account 12 data points, and those are all gathered during our onboarding process. So it's pretty easy. It's an online form. Students can figure this out themselves. Parents can also help a student do it, but it includes things like your GPA, your test scores, including SAT, ACT, if your student has taken other tests like the subject tests that are also offered by the College Board or advanced placement tests. Um, we also ask what state you're from. Do you go to a public high school or a private high school? Because that makes a difference. Uh, what is your gender? Are you Hispanic or Latino? And also what ethnicities do you uh, identify with? And then are you a recruitable athlete? And are you applying early? The cool part is we're also looking at trying to uh, quantify some of the things that are not quantifiable, like uh, demonstrated interest, um, legacy status also, um, your involvement and leadership. So these are some of the things that our data scientists are working on now that we want to add to that algorithm. So the, the, the whole college admissions process is so different from when I went to college. I mean, I... Again, dating myself, I think I actually typed my college. I guess like, <laughs> like, you know, like the Common App, right? Did you and, have whiteout? Yeah, pretty much. Probably lots of lots of whiteout. Um, so, like like SAT scores now. Like the SAT has changed so many different times. Like, what's the current state of the SAT scores? Like, and what score is like like um, average, great, and superior? Sure. So, um, so yes, the SAT went through a big revamp uh, a couple years ago that sent people into an absolute panic because people didn't know what to expect. It was hard to prepare for it. All of that has calmed down. I think the good, uh, one of the best things that came out of the changes in the SAT is that students realize they have options. So basically every college in the U.S. is going to either be test optional or they're going to accept the ACT in addition to the SAT. So students can actually explore other options. On the East Coast, in my day, we only knew about the SAT. If you were from Iowa and West, you knew about the ACT, and that's kind of how it's split. Now, geographically, uh, there's no distinction. And I think that last year was the first year that the ACT actually had more than 50% market share. Um, but what's a good score? That's a great question, and that kind of gets the heart a little bit of what we're doing in College Lab. We want to help students find the best fit schools for them, not necessarily become someone that they're not. So for your 15-year-old daughter, I would challenge her to think about how is she going to be her best self? Not, you know, does she need to achieve a certain SAT score, ACT score to get into college X? Because I'm not sure she knows enough about herself to even say the college X is her goal. But for right now, she can say, okay, what should I be exploring in high school? What courses can I be taking to do a little bit better job of learning what I'm good at and to press on areas that I haven't tried or explored yet? 
And how does that figure back into the SAT? Well, the SAT is something that, or SAT, that's something that students can start to think about beginning in 11th grade. And all you can do is do your very best. So prepare, and right now, because of all the changes in um, kind of democratizing preparation for test taking, there are so many free resources available. Yeah, like Khan Academy has a great one now, right? Khan Academy is amazing. And the ACT also has a free online tool to prepare for the exam. Mm -hmm. So students can take advantage of that and put in as much time as is useful to them. And with tools like College Lab, your daughter and other students can actually see in this section that we have called the lab, she can play with her test score. She can say, oh, let's say I take the SAT and I get a 1400. And again, 700 in each section is considered generally across the board as a really strong score. The top score is 800 in each, each section. Okay, so it's 1600 again, because it did 1600 change. 1600 is the top. There was a point in time where that wasn't <laughs> like that's what it was when I when I took it. So it was 2400. Like yeah, because it was like an essay that they had to write at some point, right? But they still students still can write an essay, but there are only I think five universities that require the essay now, and the University of California is one subset of those schools that do. Um, so yes, there's still an essay, but it's no longer graded on an 800, uh, 200 to 800 scale. It's graded on a scale of I think one to twelve. Okay, so 1,400 is like a really good score. Anything above that, it's like exceptional. Exactly. But with College Lab and with other tools that are online, students can first think, hey, what do I want in a college? And then start to look at colleges that meet those parameters. College Lab has a whole set of filters and sorts that can help your daughter and other students figure out, okay, if I want to maybe major in English or engineering, what are colleges that have that major? What if I want to take that and then reduce it even further? I only want to go to school on the West Coast. Okay, I take West Coast. What if I want to go to schools schools that have a really um, low student to teacher ratio? I can take that box. And then I start to really narrow down my options, not based on necessarily only where can I get in or what are the best schools, but what do I want out of the experience? And then using tools that College Lab has, including the lab, your daughter can say, well, what scores do I need to get in to that school? How can I increase my chances if I take an extra AP and get a four on it and the top score is a five? Is that going to increase my chances? Because your daughter only has a limited amount of time. She can't do everything. Or maybe she can. Maybe she's super, super girl. <laughs> No, but these are all like real things that we're thinking about. It's, um, you know, if you do this, what's that going to mean? And if, you know, so it's, there's so many different like levers and, um, you know, just, well, before I get into more of that, cause I can go even deeper, but so, so what's the business model behind college lab? Like, so, so how, how do you plan on, you know, generating revenue? Yeah. Oh, oh, revenue. Oh, that, <laughs> that, that piece that keeps the lights on. <laughs> yeah. So we have a subscription model. We decided early on that we wanted to be um, completely agnostic. We wanted to be a safe place for students and families to come for advice. A lot of online free tools are funded by advertising. Some of it is obvious. There are big banner ads and, and other ads that are on the side and bottom and middle and everywhere else on the page. Others have sections. Uh, colleges are sponsored, so they show higher up in lists or they show up in big print. And um, just philosophically, 
that's not our company. We really want to be democratizing. We want to be honest. We want to, we want to give, we want to be on your side as the parent. We want to be on the student side. So that's why we chose the subscription model. So um, students can sign up for College Lab for one year for $99. And that we feel is a really great value because, because we have so many tools that allow your student not just to search, but also to find that best fit. And then one feature that we have, which we haven't discussed yet, is the ability to pre-sort a student's list. So let's say uh, your daughter goes through that um, filter process that we talked about before, where she looks for certain majors in certain parts of the US with certain other, uh, with colleges that have certain other, that meet other parameters, for example, like low faculty, low student to faculty ratios. Once she narrows that down, she can actually see how what her predictive uh, what her, or what her admissions prediction is. So she'll see a percentage. Okay, at University of Vermont, she may have a 72% chance of admission. At Colby College, she may have a 19% chance of admission. And that sorts her list into reach. Those are colleges that have 25% for her chance of admission or lower. Target, which is 26% to 75% chance of admission. And then likely, which is 76% or higher. So she'll see visually and also with colors. We've, you know, we have kind of red to oranges for reachy kind of schools. And then uh, yellow to medium green for target schools. And then a nice bright positive green means go for likely schools. So she'll visually see if her list is balanced because there's such a thing as undermatching and overmatching. I don't know if you know what those are, but undermatching is you're not reaching high enough. You know, it's okay to go for the gold within reason. Um, and, you know, overmatching is, is doing the opposite, having no likely schools. And that can result in some very unhappy situations and we don't want to see students there. Wow. It's such a valuable tool. It's something like, you know, I wish I had all these tools available when I was, you know, exploring colleges, you know, cause it's just like, you know, you like you had uh, no internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just went to your uh, guidance counselor and like, here's the book. Go ahead. And then uh, you pick three schools and that's kind of what I figured out. And instead of having the world at your fingertips and the common app and all these tools to help guide you down the right direction, that's a great fit for you. Um, so, you know, it just seems like the, uh, you know, the schools, like if, if the school is, you know, a good fit for the child, right? So we're going to put that piece aside, which I appreciate that that's like your stance of, you know, kids should just focus on what's uh, good for them, not because yes. the school What's is good. supposedly good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but the admissions for schools are just seem to be getting increasingly competitive where you know, I'll hear stories of so-and-so has a, you know, a four point something GPA, a 14 or a 1360 on their SATs. And I'm making things up. Um, and a three sport athlete captain of all teams and um, you know, started a nonprofit, that is, you know, and so you hear these things, and you're like, oh my God, when do kids have time to do all these things yet still didn't get into whatever Ivy League school or something? I don't know. I'm getting total fiction here, but yeah. what, so what are admission officers looking for uh, when it's so competitive where it seems like the kids get the grades, they get the scores. So outside of that, you know, like you're solving third world problems. Yes. Like, oh, crazy. Like, 
So, so colleges have what are called institutional priorities. So each college is going to answer that question slightly differently. Um, the, the famous institutional priorities that most people are aware of, particularly because of the admission scandal, um, are fundraising and development. Colleges need to keep the door, doors open. Uh, this past year, I think just Vermont in and of itself has lost four uh, private universities. So colleges need to keep the door open. They need to raise money. So there are always development cases. Many colleges decide that sports is a priority so that that's what gets us to the admission scandal with USC and Yale and other colleges getting into trouble. So but keeping sports teams going is another priority. Um, keeping their, and this kind of goes back a little bit to the fundraising piece, but keeping alumni happy. So therefore letting in legacy children at a higher rate. Those that also can matter at a college. Mm. Of course, colleges want to find students who love them as much as they love the students. Colleges are concerned about something called yield. And yield is the percentage of accepted students who accept the college. So fast forward to when your student gets your acceptances. And nowadays with the Common App, we have students applying to 20 schools. So let's say a kid, you know, we have, we've all seen the YouTube videos, child gets into all 20, you know, schools and all 10 Ivies or whatever it is. And, you know, they're rejoicing. But only one of, that's, the child's only going to go to one of them. So Harvard is the school with the highest yield. And I think uh, most recent numbers show that their yield is around 80%. Most other schools, probably Stanford is also 70 or 80, but then the rest of the Ivies fall at around 50%. So that means that only 50% of the students to whom, you know, let's say Dartmouth offers a place to, only 50% are gonna accept that. And then as we go down to less selective schools, it's gonna go even lower, 20%, 10%. So colleges don't like that. Yield is something that they kind of hold as a badge of courage. And so, um, so improving yield has become important. And more and more colleges are starting to track what's called demonstrated interest. And that can be a student visiting a campus. That can be signing up for, um, you know, they still have things like mailing lists, but those are email mailing lists online. Uh, they also track literally movement of your student on his or her computer. So let's say, you know, your daughter goes to um, BC's website. BC, and I don't know if BC's doing it or not, but there are many colleges that will say, okay, well, where's the student coming from? Did they sign up, you know, for our tour? Who are they? Yes, they visit our website. Tick in the plus column. So demonstrated interest is becoming more and more important because colleges are having a really hard time dealing with the situation that you, you described, which is everyone's qualified. So then that would suggest that early decision puts you in a much favorably favorable light of increasing your acceptance possibilities. That is correct. And the colleges are also playing around a little bit with, with this early application process. So it used to be that there was just one, there was early decision. And then early decision begat early action. And early decision is you apply early, generally by November 1 or November 15, and you hear early, and you've also made a commitment to go to the college. So thinking back to that conversation about yield, a person who applies early decision is 100% yield. You know that person's going to come. They've promised, right? And there are the rare exceptions where people break their promise, but that causes a lot of problems for everybody. So early decision is, yes, we want you you want us, you're in, you find out. Early action is you apply early, you find out early, but there's no commitment. So schools like early action, colleges like early action because it gives them an idea of what kind of students are applying to their institutions, but they use it very differently. 
Some colleges like Notre Dame use early action to kind of cherry pick and they'll tell you right in their admissions sections, only the very top candidates should apply early action to Notre Dame because we're only going to pick the very top. And we might even reject you because people forget that you can actually get rejected at many schools in that early round. Not every college does it that way, but many do reject in that early round. And then we started getting into funkier things. So some of the most selective colleges started a program called restrictive early action, which is like the worst of all worlds from a student perspective, because you have to apply early. When you're under restrictive early action, you can't apply anywhere else, either early decision or, or early action. You find out early, but you're not making a commitment. So you're not really getting that benefit. You're locking yourself in by de facto not being able to apply early anywhere else where you might get a bump in admissions chance. And then you have schools playing this ED2 game. So that's if you didn't get in in the first early decision round, so you apply by, let's say, November 1, you find out by December 15. Well, guess what? On January 1, you have a choice with several schools. You can apply regular admission or you can apply ED2. So they know that many students get rejected from very highly selective schools in the early decision round or deferred into the main pool. So they're trying to capture those really strong students and saying, hey, pick us. We'll give you, you know, a quick answer, but you have to commit to us. And, and we'll give you a bump in the admissions process because you're telling us that you love us just like we love you. Wow. You're opening <laughs> my eyes to a whole world that I didn't even know all those different options for uh, applying existed. Okay. And Get ready. College lab, just so you know, there is a little uh, box that a student can tick to see how his or her chances increase if they were to apply under that particular school's early program. Okay. So what's your plan for rolling out College Lab? I mean, so it's a consumer product. It's a, you know, that's, that's a tough thing to build for any type of company. So what's your plan as far as, you know, that acquisition strategy? Sure. So um, we actually are, we are definitely a consumer product. And in fact, we were started specifically uh, with a direct to consumer model with that $99 subscription price. So we're working with a fantastic uh, marketing partner, Christine Fisk, to advertise and market our tool via social media. So Facebook, Instagram, mostly hitting up parents with Facebook because not many students are on it anymore. Instagram for students. We create uh, our own organic content via blog posts and other useful tools and posts that we promote via those channels. We also promote via LinkedIn. Uh, and we've experimented a little bit with Snapchat still learning about that. Uh, we're also hitting up other uh, channels because as you mentioned, going direct to consumer is very expensive and it takes a long time. So we are not going to give up on that. We're excited about the um, reception that we've had from the consumer side, but we're also talking to independent educational counselors. So people like me who are looking for tools to do their job better and with more efficiency. So we're present at conferences like the National Association of College Admissions Counselors. That's a national organization that meets a couple times a year. We go to their annual conference meeting with schools, independent counselors, et cetera, to spread the word about College Lab. We're also selling it directly to high schools. So um, maybe this is taking us down another path, but there is a, a tool that uh, had penetrated approximately 60% of the school market called Naviance. But they ran into a lot of issues with uh, usability and, and some of their data. 
And so many schools are moving away from them. So that created a bit of a void in the market. So there's been a lot of market upheaval and we believe we have opportunity in that market as well. And then one exciting uh, market vertical that we're just starting to explore is offering College Lab as an employee benefit. That's a great idea. Yeah. So, you know, again, uh, there are a lot of statistics around and there have been, I have some articles behind me that have been in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about the percent of, to- percent of time and hours that parents are spending while at work doing college research for their kids. And so, you know, look, we know that we can't remove that stress from our lives as parents. And so companies can say, hey, we can help you do that better and faster. We're going to support you in that in a really um, efficient way which we think is exciting. Oh. Well, I, I hope it all works out because a tool like this, and like you said, you've, you've, you're maintaining the integrity of your data so that when parents and, and um, students do access it, they're getting real meaningful information to help guide them to hopefully the school that is uh, you know, the right fit for them, that challenges exactly. them academically and puts them on the path to hopefully a great future ahead professionally. So. Exactly. And that's what keeps us smiling and helps us sleep at night, Keith. We're really excited about being able to democratize that admissions process for almost every student out there. Well, I'm excited to be a a soon-to-be user. So (laughs) Exactly. Come on board. Thank you for your time, Keith. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing all the details on your background and, of course, all the great things you guys are doing with College Lab and such deep insight into the admissions process, which selfishly I needed. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. We're here for you. Cool. Well, thanks so much again for your time. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.